When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early in the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the Ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and, they, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both in Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They said, or they answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of God to Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the, God of, or the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought round to us the ark of God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel. And let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. So ends the reading of God's word. And what do we know about God's word? It is no empty word for us, but our very life. Let's pray together. O oh Lord, you are our God. And we earnestly seek you. We do profess with our mouths that your word is no empty word, but is our very life. And so I pray that you would help us to hear it, to put ourselves under it. Pray that you would teach us. Would you draw us closer to yourself? Would you magnify yourself in our hearts and in our ears this morning? And would you fix our eyes on Jesus? And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As the story shifts from the battlefield of Ebenezer to the city of Ashdod, we see the Ark of God being brought into the land of Philistines. And this entire chapter is behind enemy lines entirely. There's not a single Israelite person mentioned in this entire chapter. No Israelite man, woman, or child is seen, heard, or even mentioned. It is solely focused on the Philistines and their god, Dagon. But why would God give us this chapter in his word to fix our eyes on the Philistines? God's word is primarily for his people, is it not? Not for the Philistines? I think the answer for us is quite simple as we look at this, is that God wanted to hold up the Philistines as a mirror to his people. He wanted them to look at the Philistines and say, you are my people, and yet you are not much different from them. 
I want you to look at how the Philistines act in response to me, and I want you to see yourself in these Philistines. You are my covenant people, and yet you are not living as my covenant people. Look at these Philistines. Repent, and I will return to you, even as you return to me. And of course, beloved, God's word is not just for the Israelites, but it is for all of God's people, even for you and for me. And what our God would have us do is to take a look at the Philistines as a window into the heart of the natural heart of man in response to the Almighty God. And by that, I mean the the natural heart of man, how we are born naturally into this world, our natural way of perceiving God, responding to God is reflected in this chapter. And even as we come by God's grace to Jesus Christ and we are renewed in Jesus Christ, that natural heart, that natural man is still resident within us and we are at war with that way of thinking. We must be renewed in the image of our creator. We must be restored to Christ and given a new mind as we learn how to live in covenant with our God. So we'll see a few different observations of the natural man as we look at the Philistines and how we must change our way of thinking. And the first observation that we can see in the Philistines is the natural man walks by sight, not by faith. The natural man lives by his own reason rather than by God's revelation. So there was this battle in Ebenezer, and the Philistines won. The 30,000 of Israelites, Israelite soldiers were killed. The priests, Hophni and Phinehas, were killed. The ark of God was captured. If you pause the movie right there, and you ask the question, why? What does that mean? That is where our reason and our interpretation come into play. We all live in the events of history, the circumstances of life, but circumstances and events must be interpreted. How do we understand what these events mean? How do we understand what's going on? How do we understand God, ourselves, how we must live? Naturally, we rely on our reason, our observation, the things that we see, the sight, In uh, October of 1974, there was a great boxing match between George Foreman, who was the heavyweight champion of the world, and Muhammad Ali, who was an aging Muhammad Ali. And in this fight, there was a point where Muhammad Ali was driven up against the ropes, and his hands were up in this defensive position. He was taking punch after punch after the hard-hitting George Foreman. And if you pause the movie right there, and you say, okay, what does this mean? Every observer of this fight, they might say, well, Ali was overmatched. He was tired. He was too old, too slow. He was about to lose. He wasn't going to make it. But that was far from the case. This was a strategy that Ali had established, which has now been called the rope-a-dope, where he leaned against the ropes to absorb the blows of the heavy-hitting foreman. He put his hands up in defensive measure to to deflect those, those punches, even while he looked for an opportunity to hit back a counterpunch against his opponent, which he eventually 
resulted in a knockout of his opponent. And in this battle of, between the Philistines and the Israelites, the Philistines said, ha-ha, we've won. We won the battle. And by their reason, by their sight, they began to say, well, why did we win? It must have been our might, the strength of our might, or the strength of our God, Dagon. And the Israelites were no better. The Israelites looked at it depressed, despondent, in tears. The glory of God has departed from Israel. And beloved, what happens is we have this natural heart of unbelief. We want to observe by what we see in our own reason, but our reason is affected by our unbelief. We naturally believe that God is somehow beholden to the events and circumstances that we see before us. But God does not operate within the circumstances of history and the events of our lives. God operates above them. He is sovereign over them. He is not somehow subject to chance and circumstance, but sovereignly superintending over all things. And even over the most minutest of details, there's not a single event in history that is not under God's control. Jesus told us that. He said, there's not a sparrow that falls to the ground apart from the will of your father. He said, there's more than that. There's not a hair of your head that falls apart from the will of God. Every minute detail is sovereignly part of God's powerful plan. And God does whatsoever he wills. Everything that, he, that, that happens is part of God's gracious and perfect plan. But we tend to look at it and we forget. We some doubt that God is really in control. And even in the greatest event in all of human history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, even then, People doubted. Even his own disciples doubted. You may remember the story that happened after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There were two disciples that are walking from Jerusalem on the road to Emmaus. Jesus appears to them, but they don't recognize him, and they are sad. And he says, what are you talking about? Says, the things have happened in Jerusalem. He says, what things? And they're like, are you kidding me? Don't you know what just happened? He says, tell me. And he says, well, there was Jesus. We thought he was the one that was going to redeem Israel. But he died. It's been three days. So obviously that's not the case. They saw with their eyes. Jesus crucified. He was buried. He hasn't been risen from the dead. And his response to them was this. He says, oh, foolish ones. Foolish ones. And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary? Savior, Savior be crucified died for you. And that is our natural heart, beloved. And so my question to you is, are you walking by faith? Or are you walking by sight? Are you consumed by the things that you see? Forgetting that God is sovereignly over all things. Jesus Christ came to show us his will, show us his perfect love, show us his perfect power. His death and his resurrection are proof that he that God is not bound by the things that we normally think, the, 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 the reasonable way of things, as it were. 
And part of our problem, a large part of our problem, this unbelief has to do with the second observation that we can have from the Philistines is that by nature, we think that God is no different from the idols of man. That God is no different from the idols of man. Uh, the Philistines were a superstitious people. In fact, apart from true faith in the one true and living God that is ours in Jesus Christ, we are all superstitious people. But they were clearly superstitious. We see a bit of their superstition when it talks about later, you know, they, would, they wouldn't step over on the threshold. Uh, that is an act of superstition. But idol worship lends us to superstition because we know that idols are false. Idols are powerless. Idols are a work of our hands. Idols have no power in them themselves. You know, you have a lucky rabbit's foot that you rub when you're needing some good luck. There's no power in that silly little trinket. But we assign to our idols a power and a hope that is superstitious. And the Philistines had this superstitious view of God. They, when, when they were on the battlefield of Ebenezer, they had heard these rumors of what this God or these gods, they weren't sure, had done to the Egyptians. And they were afraid. And when the ark came in, they were even more afraid because the Israelites were riled up and pumped up. They were ready to fight. And the Israelites were just as superstitious. Why did they bring the ark of, the God, of God into the camp? It wasn't because God had commanded the ark to come. It wasn't because they wanted to be in devotion and, and in unity with God. It was because they wanted what they thought that ark could provide. That ark was a trinket of their superstition to bring power and success to their battle. And when the Philistines won the battle, they took they, they viewed this ark as just another trinket, just another idol that could be used for their superstition. Their text says that they took it and they put it in the temple of Dagon beside Dagon. In one sense, that was a sign that they believed that their God, Dagon was victorious over a battle and they were putting the ark of God next to it. In another sense, it was superstitious because, well, perhaps this ark has some kind of power and we want that to share its power with Dagon. So the Dagon will become even more powerful. And beloved, the idols that we create, we, we constantly look for idols. We assign power to idols that we create, that we fabricate. We're looking for some sort of power, some kind of magic, some kind of control, something that we can control, that can give us what we want. It's a form of superstition. Why, why do we idolize money? What, what is it about money that draws us to it? What's the power, the perceived power? If I have the money, I could be happy. Buy what I want. I can do what I want. I can control what I want. So I worship money. I do everything I can to pursue, pursue it, to get it. I will put myself in the path of its power. Why do we idolize the government? 
We're the legal system. Why do we love law? We want justice. We want the power of things being right. So we elevate the government to a place of power and worship and law. Those are the things that we want. My dear friends, check your heart. I think we do the same thing with the Almighty God. We treat God as yet another idol of our heart. The Philistines took the Ark of God and they placed it in the temple of Dagon, but do we not take the Almighty God and place him as though he is an idol alongside the other idols of our heart that we will take off the shelf and use when we so desire? When you're in a bind, well, now it's time for me to pray. Let me take God off. God said that he will answer my prayers. Let me take him. Let's see if I can get that power of prayer. Well, now I'm out of that bind. Let's put God back on the shelf. Let me, what, what's the idol that I want now? Pleasure? Power? Success? Don't hear me. Don't hear me wrong. We must pray. But it's a question of our hearts. Is God at the center of your heart and the center of your life driving all of your activity? Or is God on the periphery that you can take and put back when you so desire? Are you in devotion with God only insofar as he provides you what you're looking for, but when he disappoints, you put him back on the shelf and you go another direction? And beloved, this is the natural heart of how we respond because it's a heart of unbelief. We don't naturally believe that this God is any different from any other God of man. We, but here's the, here's the thing. It's an absolute and utter lie because this God is the one, the true and the living God He's not a God that we fashioned after our own likeness. He's true God. We were fashioned in his image, in his likeness. But if you read the pages of scripture, like the, it's a battle of idolatry, of God laughing at the idols that we make, saying, hey, you're making these idols. They have eyes, but they can't see. They've got mouths, they can't speak. They've got ears, they can't hear. They've got hands, they have no power. But the same, people are saying the same thing about God. God, do you not hear? Do you, do you, he, God doesn't see what I'm doing. God, where, where is your power to save? Question of control. Idols are nice and neat. We can pick them up and carry them into battle. We can use them as long as they're efficient, you know, effective for us. But when we're done, we put them back and we walk away. Beloved, are you seeking to conform the Almighty God into an idol of your convenience or efficiency? God will never be fashioned in such a way. God is God. And look at how God responded in the midst of Dagon's temple. The Philistines thought, well, this is just, just yet another trinket. Put it on the shelf. But when they showed up the next morning, Dagon was lying face down before the ark of the Lord. Dagon knew where he belonged. He understood that he was nothing. 
and that he must bow in humble adoration and worship of the one true and living God. You see what it says? That the Philistines, Philistines didn't see it that way. They said, uh, and the, the, the Philistines, uh, so, they, so they took Dagon and they put him back in his place. Do you understand the utter folly of our idols? What kind of God requires us to put him back in his place? What, what kind of God is worth worshiping that can't even lift himself off the ground and put himself back? And yet, how do we do that? We so often ascribe glory and praise and honor and our energy and our worship to these things that are not. But of course, the story didn't stop there. Because the next morning, they come back and Dagon is back on his face. Only this time, his head and his hands are cut off. It says they were lying on the threshold. And make no mistake, my friends, this was a military defeat. This was an act of victory by Yahweh over Dagon. Uh, the, in, in that particular custom and time uh, when they would defeat a particular enemy, it was a customary thing to cut off the head of the opponent as a sign of victory. We'll see that a few more times in the book of 1 Samuel. But there was a, a pagan literature, story, fable, whatever you want to call it, um, about a goddess called Anat. And she uh, would go around attacking her enemies, and she was known for having all these severed heads slung on her back and this, this, uh, these palms of her, of her previous victims hanging off of her belt. It was a sign of victory, and God's saying, I just cut off the head of your God. I took his palms, and I've thrown them down. But it wasn't just a sign of victory, but it was, it was unmasking the, the true reality of Dagon. Um, the, the passage, our, our English translation says that, uh, in verse four, it says that his hands and, and head were cut off. It says only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. The, the Hebrew literally says only Dagon was left to him. It's almost like the, the author wanted to say, you see that stump? That's your God. He has no eyes, he has no ears, he has no mind to think, he has no will, he can't speak to you, he has no power in his hands. And such is the case with all of our idols, beloved. But that's why Jesus Christ came. Because our hearts, as John Calvin said, our hearts are idol factories. We are constantly looking for ways to make idols in our own image, idols that we can control, but God is God, and he will not conform to our image. He will not be controlled by us. He will not give his glory to another. He calls us to bow down and worship him, to submit ourselves to him, to find our center in him. True faith in Jesus Christ, true faith in Jesus Christ, beloved, is not just a profession of our, of our lips. It is a whole self. Check, check your, not just your words. Don't rely on your public confession to see if you are in Christ. Check the whole of your being. Check the secret thoughts of your mind and your heart. Check your affections. Check your schedules. Because true faith in Jesus Christ doesn't see the Almighty as yet another God 
but as the one true and living God. It receives the, the word of God, allows us to transform our thinking. And once we know who this God is, it affects our emotions to hear of the, this, the love of this God who is, that love is particular. It's directed toward us. It's sovereign. It's powerful. And that he is king over all. It affects us emotionally. And by necessity, it works itself out in how we live. James said, like the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. Because faith is, the, is that spirit. Or the, the, the works, the working out, it shows the spirit of that faith. Check your heart. Check your life. See if you were in Christ. And we must do this, beloved, because this is God. He is God. There is no other. He is holy, and he will be victorious. There's one final thing that we must see in the Philistines that is implicit in our heart, which actually prevents us from doing this very thing, is that the natural man sees God as an object of fear. Naturally, we do everything we can to flee, avoid, hide from God rather than drawing near to him, which seems may seem a bit counterproductive to what we just said. In, what, in one sense, we, we seek to take God and we try to make him small, something portable, something that we can control. But on the other hand, we're abjectly afraid of this God. We have this fear. It's not really contradictory. Maybe it is. But it's also very quite simple, is that God created us for him, and we know in our gut every one of us, that there is a God. The fool says in his heart, the psalm says that there is no God, but the fool doesn't believe it. You pay attention to these so-called professional atheists, those who spend their time writing books and giving talks. They give their energy, they give their lives to dispelling something that they say doesn't exist. You look at uh, modern culture that spends so much effort trying to fight against a God they don't believe in. What's going on? Well, clearly they do believe. They, they refuse to accept it. They, the natural man, we, we know inherently that God is wholly other. That God is not just this containable safe trinket on the shelf, but the almighty God for whom we were created. That there's something holy other than him and that we are holy not, that we are unholy, that, we, that he's, he's terrifying. And scripture testifies to that fact, that he says, arise, O Lord, and utterly terrify your opponents. And this has been the story from the very beginning. I'm sure you remember the story back in the garden. Adam and Eve were in perfect fellowship with God, and then all of a sudden they sinned, what did they do? It became a hiding game, hide and go seek. I'm going to run away from God. 
I hide in the bushes, hide myself behind fig leaves. I don't want God to find me. I don't know what he's going to do. He, I, I deserve his wrath. I broke his law. He's going to do what he wants to do. And that's been the story throughout all of Scripture. And it, even in the very end, on the very last days, what Revelation tells us is that the people who are not, whose names are not written in the book of life, who have not put their faith in Jesus Christ, what are they going to do? They're going to run and hide. They're going to go to the mountains, and they're going to cry out to the mountains, fall on us and hide us from the wrath of him who is to come. There is a reality to our fear. It is right for us to be terrified of God because we are unholy. We are in, we're deserving his wrath, and we cannot control him because he is God. He has said he cannot tolerate evil. We know that we are utterly evil, even if we don't admit it. But beloved, that's, what, that's what's so wonderful about the gospel. That's why Jesus Christ came. Jesus Christ came to drive out that fear. Perfect love drives out fear, casts it out. He came not to give us, not to condemn the world, but that through him that we might be saved, he said. He came to, to bear that utter terror of the wrath of God on the cross. God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And what Paul says, the Apostle Paul, is he says, we have now, we don't have a spirit of fear, but a spirit of sonship because of what Jesus has done. In Jesus Christ, through faith in him, his spirit dwells within us, not to be afraid, but to have a spirit of sonship, to, to be able to draw near to the throne of grace, as Hebrews says, to cry out to him, Abba, Father, knowing that everything he does is for us, that his power is for us. So, friends, check your heart. Do you, do you flee? Do you flee God? Is your heart looking to avoid God? Or are you running to him? Because Jesus, Jesus came and he said, you must run to me. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me. I am the rock of your refuge. I am the rock of your salvation. Come to me and, and buy from me pure clothing, gold refined by fire, true wisdom, all the, the riches in the heavenly places. But we have to go to him. It is to him that we have to run. But we run, we, we flee. And I hope you can see the folly of, of our fleeing. I mean, it was folly in the garden. Adam and Eve hiding in some bushes. But here it's folly from the Philistines. They think they can somehow get away from God. They, 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 they have, they're afflicted with these tumors, and they call the, the, the assembly of the lords of these five cities of the Philistines, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gaza, Gath, and Ekron. And they say, what should we do? Well, they say, well, get rid of the ark. You know, send it. Send it to, to Gath. And I say, okay, we'll send it to Gath. And it's not at Gath for very long because as soon as it gets to Gath, well, the Gath, Gathites start getting afflicted with these tumors. And they say, well, well, let's get it out of here. It's hot potato. Get the, get, the, get the ark out of Gath and let's send it to Ekron. And by now, Ekron is saying, whoa, what, what are you guys trying to do? You're trying to kill us all. They know that escaping the power of God is 
folly. Wherever God is, there is this terror. And so, so it is with us, beloved. We try, we try to run away from God, and we try to flee from him because he, we're afraid. But the solution is to run to him. You want to flee from the wrath to come? You have to run to Christ. He is the only rock that will save you from the wrath to come. You want to flee God's frown because of your sin? You have to run to Christ because God smiles at his son, and in him we feel his beaming smile and his loving eyes. You want to flee from the judgment that comes because of our sins? We need to run to the blood of Jesus Christ, which cleanses us from all unrighteousness and clothes us with this perfect raiment of his righteousness. Beloved, Jesus Christ was given to us that we might know his love, his acceptance, that we might draw near with confidence to worship him. And we must do this, beloved, because Jesus Christ came for a military victory. Came for a military victory. Jesus said, I come not to bring peace, but a sword. He came to bring his kingdom, and there is this battle that is at, at war. And God has a, raised Jesus from the dead, and he has seated him in the heavenly places with all authority and power. And we are now at a point where all enemies are being put under his feet. And he will conquer every one of his enemies. Everyone will be conquered. It is a military conquest that is at odds or at work right now. And beloved, what you need to know is that all of his enemies will be conquered either now or then. And right now, he is conquering with his grace, with his love. He fights not with the weapons of this world, but with a sword of his mouth, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the call to us is to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, to bow our knee to Christ to profess Jesus Christ as Lord, to make him our king, to submit ourselves to him, to fall into the ranks of his people, and to wage war with the weapons of the gospel. And beloved, if you are in Jesus Christ, you have been conquered by Jesus Christ, and his grace and his love, and he is yours, and his salvation is yours. It is sure because none will be able to defeat him. Beloved, look, we have to look at Dagon. Dagon gives, gives us the two possible outcomes for all of God's enemies, either bowing before the Lord Jesus Christ or being broken to pieces, crushed to pieces. For all those who do not submit to Christ and call him Lord, they still will be defeated at the end of days, but it will be terrible. It will be dreadful. It will be humiliating. It will be eternal. There will be no hope, only a dreadful expectation of judgment without ceasing, without relief, and with none to save. This, my beloved, will be the perfect and complete victory of the Almighty God through His Son, Jesus Christ, our King. I beg you, I urge you, submit yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. Hide yourself 
in him. Bow your knee to him. Find yourself, your center, your whole, your being in him. Let him conform you to his image. Because in him and him alone is everything that we need, everything that we could ever want, and even more than we could ever possibly ask or imagine. And to him will be glory and honor and praise forever and ever and absolute victory. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have sent your son to be our victorious king. Forgive us for our unbelief. Thank you that you help us in our unbelief, that you continually speak to us and you encourage us and you draw us back to yourself. Oh Lord, would your spirit convict us? If your spirit has convicted us of ways in which we have sinned against you, oh Lord, please help us to repent of those things. Help us to return to you. Help us to find ourselves in Christ Jesus, not try to attach Christ Jesus to our lives but I pray that we would give you honor and praise and glory and adoration in everything that we do. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.